Well, good afternoon. It is 5 o'clock, December the 18th. I'm on my way home. So, I, I have had this topic that I've wanted to chat about for a couple of days. It's a wee bit of a departure, but I think it's an interesting topic, uh, which is the relationship between the state and sports. Um, it is something that I have had a little bit of experience in. I mean, I grew up in, uh, in England. I was born in Ireland. I grew up in England. I spent a little bit of time in Africa with my father. And so I've been exposed to a wide variety of different sort of sports, um, sort of motifs or, or sports environments. The British one, of course, being the most intense. When I was in boarding school, when I was very young, of course, sports was you know, a very big thing. And I've been sort of fascinated by this question of sports. I myself, uh, I'm lucky enough to be quite athletic. Uh, I've enjoyed a wide variety of sports throughout my life, and uh, currently uh, <laughs> I'm involved in the manly sport of aerobics and weightlifting. I don't actually play any organized sports at the moment. I just don't have time. But I did meet my wife uh, playing volleyball. And gosh, I, I play tennis and, and soccer and uh, uh, cricket. I played baseball. It's just, you know, I really enjoy exercise and so on. But there is something that I've never, never in my life understood. It's something I've never been able to really fully, even partially grasp. And I'll sort of relate an anecdote that may be of interest to you. I, I thought it was kind of funny because this happened when I was very, very young. I, I was five years old. It's one of my earliest memories outside uh, of, of my, my home. And what it was, I was standing on the the front steps of the apartment building. I grew up in a sort of project in, in, in England. Uh, a project. I mean, that sounds a little bit apocalyptic. It was, you know, not uh, not that bad a place or anything, but, you know, wasn't uh, uh, wasn't anything snooty by any stretch. And I'm standing out front of the building, and England, as you may or may not know, is, is soccer or football mad. You know, they just, people lose their entire lives to obsessing about their team, right? Because... Uh, any kind of uh, sports addiction or, or you know, uh, let's say a little too heightened interest in the fates of, of teams is a form of, of gambling addiction, right? I mean, it's, it's uh, also a spin-off of religious or mystical um, convictions uh, simply because, you know, you're uh, highly uh, emotionally invested in things over which you have no control, like you know, praying to a god and so on. So there's lots of aspects to this kind of fervor that, that have uh, roots in irrationality. But so England is soccer mad, and I grew up in uh, on a little street called Hermitage Road, which was near Crystal Palace, uh, near a small section of London called Crown Point. And, of course, uh, football mania was just rampant, right, whose team was the best and whose players were the best and who was the, I think, four divisions or three divisions and we were always the bottom of the third division. I mean, the, the team that, that my sort of, uh, um, uh, my section of town happened to be represented by was called Crystal Palace and, you know, I think they'd been in the first division once in the, you know, around the time the Magna Carta was signed and after that the fortunes fell into steady decline and, and so on. And so I was standing... Um, out front of my apartment building, and this kid uh, came up to me. I guess I was, as I said, five years old or so. And he's like, West Ham rules, he, he shouted at me. Crystal Palace 
sucks or, or something. I mean, I think sucks might be a bit modern for, I guess, something that was occurring in 1971, but it was, I think, somewhat safe to say that it was fairly negative anyway. And I said to him, and now this is paraphrasing, I, I distinctly remember saying, I can't remember the words you used, but it was something like, but so what? You know, you just, you just, it's an accident. It's an accident. You know, and he's like, what are you talking about? And I said, well, you just, I'm born here, you're born there. It's an accident. I know this sounds alarmingly, if not pretentiously, precocious, but I swear <laughs> that uh, this occurred, and this was my distinct thought, that this guy was, this kid was, you know, powerfully invested in, you know, a complete accident of, of circumstance, you know, that, that he was gaining self-esteem from, you know, this random, you know, where was he when his mother squatted and dropped him? Well, he was in West Ham, uh, therefore West Ham is the best, and he can, whatever, right, lord it over. That's sort of one thing that I remember. Another thing that I recall in my sort of early sense or education about sports and mythology was um, this a fact that uh, uh, my team, uh, Crystal Palace, was, you know, the, your team. I, I think I went to one soccer game in my life, and it was like 1-1, and it was basically like a, you know, a slow <laughs> a slow and painful time at the dentist, because it just, the whole play felt so constipated. Um, but, uh, you know, I, 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 so I went to see this, this team that was supposed to be my team, or I saw them on TV, I can't remember. And, you know, the, basically a whole bunch of Jamaican fellows came running out on the pitch and you know when they were interviewed you know had these broad thick rasta accents you know talking about how how happy they were man to be <laughs> represent an england man uh, i apologize for my rasta accent i'm i'm far too white to have it work <laughs> very well but you know i mean it did of course strike me as somewhat bizarre that you know, these guys who didn't look anything like me, didn't speak anything like me, came from a completely different part of the world, and obviously were not uh, exactly, uh, hadn't exactly been in England for a whole uh, lot of time, were sort of, I was supposed to identify with, and, you know, so th that was the one thing. And then the last thing that, once I, I think it was a year or two later, that I understood that the, the players switched teams, and, and uh, of course, I think it was a year after that that, that I found out that the coach, uh, coaches switched teams. And then it all became <laughs> very confusing to me. I mean, really, literally, it did become absolutely confusing because it was like, okay, so I've got this team called Crystal Palace that is supposed to be the be-all and end-all, and I'm supposed to love and worship this team and, you know, get really hung up on whether they win or lose. Well, uh, what uh, part of the team is it that uh, it's, I'm supposed to identify with? It's not the players, because, you know, they're not, you know, anything like me. They're not, you know, they're from a different part of the world, and they're new to the country and so on. It's not the coach, because he's going to come and go. I think Crystal Palace coaches went with appalling regularity as they were unable to raise their team's fortunes. Uh, you know, it's not the players, even if they're, you know, new to the country, if they stick around, right? because they'll just get traded next year or the year after. And so I literally would, <laughs> would, would sort of f try and figure out what I was, uh, you know, committing my allegiance to. Was it to the sweaters? Was it to the uniform? Was it to the, the mascot? Not even the guy in the mascot uniform, but the mascot uniform itself, because that was pretty shabby and seemed to be around for a while. Or, you know, was it the, the, was it the house? 
uh, the, that the uh, the football club was housed in? Was it the, you know, it, none of it really made any sense. But I certainly couldn't, uh, in any way, shape, or form, understand you know, how on earth I was supposed to have any kind of sensible allegiance to this, you know, sort of silly made-up club where you know members came and went, you know. But it was supposed to be that. That's my allegiance. That's my. So you know, I guess you could say it was sort sort of innate in me to to have this sort of approach to allegiance which was uh, I guess not uh, habitual or not conventional or I guess I just didn't take things for granted I mean I would you know see these lunatics screaming and waving their arms and jumping up and down and you know just going demonically nuts over the fortunes of this team and you know I, I guess originally I thought it was sort of like the racetrack where they had money on it and you know once I found out that they didn't I just I just couldn't understand what are you what are you cheering? I just couldn't figure it out. It just made no sense to me. So, you know, I guess it's been a long time that I've mulled over um, the idea of sports, uh, you know, organized sports, sports where you kind of sit there and watch. Uh, to me, I mean, you know, to be, to be, I guess, somewhat blunt, I understand pornography a little more than I understand watching sports. Um... You know, uh, watching sports is completely passive. My understanding is that watching pornography is not exactly passive. So, at least there's some benefit to 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 pornography. But you know, sitting there and watching other people exercise, you know, it just and it's not like it's beautiful. I mean, the occasional sport like figure skating or whatever, or you know, gymnastic. That sort of for me, like the queasy, gutted, lump in the throat look at especially those little girl gymnasts it's just like oh man they just look like they're so frail and they're just going to get hammered in some ugly way on that bar and I don't find that too pleasant to watch but you know certain kinds of figure skating or whatever you know quite quite aesthetically pleasing and so on but you know hockey I mean it's not exactly the ballet you know football I mean it's just lunatic it's just watching these you know pumped up steroided you know these eight monsters just you know lunging at each other and you know like eight minutes of play in two and a half hours I mean boy that's just like watching somebody do their taxes so uh, I guess I've, I've had a fair amount of time to, th- to think about this stuff as you, I'm sure you're aware and to try and figure out why on earth people would uh, like w- what is the adaptive nature of this why why do people have any sort of interest in this and why are people interested in watching other people uh, you know, perform athletic, like do something athletic when, you know, you could be out, you know, having a run or, you know, going for a swim or playing on a, some sport. Why would you watch other people do it? Well, you know, it's not because these people are just good at what they do. You know, I mean, my accountant is great at what he does, but I don't watch him do it. Um, you know, so it's that that's not the criteria at all. Um, it's not because you have money riding on it because a lot of people don't bet. <laughs> on sports. Uh, It's not because you have any particular cultural or emotional identification, well, cultural identification with the team, because, you know, they can be a bunch of Jamaicans fresh off the boat, and, you know, they're suddenly supposed to glide straight into your collective unconscious and represent you in the larger sphere of things. So, you know, the question is why? Well, I think one of the the, uh, the, uh, the clues about sports is that it is enormously subsidized. I mean, the subsidies that rain down on the sports world are just staggering. Now, I'm not saying that every amateur athlete in the world has, you know, uh, a Ferrari and, you know, uh, a big swimming pool in the backyard. I mean, I know that athletes don't do 
very well financially. You know, they get by on 15k a year, or 20k a year, or 12k a year, or you know maybe even less. But I got to tell you, there's <laughs> there's a huge difference between 15k a year, which you can conceivably live on. I mean, I know when I was a student, I rented a room in an apartment with you know five other people uh, in a house with five other people. I was paying 200 and $50, a month, and you can live on $1,000 a month. You can live on fifteen, uh, on, on even $800 a month, even in Toronto. This was like right downtown. So there's a huge difference between something like $15,000 or $12,000 a year and $0 a year, right? Because $0 a year means you've got to get a full-time job, and, you know, $15,000 a year, you're living somewhat aesthetically, but you're living, and that's, you know, obviously a fairly big difference between, you know, Zero and 15 is a big difference. 15 and 30, eh, not so much. So I guess, yeah, the one is a difference in kind. The other is a difference in degree. So, you know, they get enough to get by. And, you know, the, 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 uh, the sports facilities are incredibly subsidized, right? I mean, skating was free when I was a kid or very cheap. And, you know, swimming was free. And the gym was all available. And sports fields were available and subsidized. And, and uh, you know, you could get a, a pretty good subsidy uh, which meant it was either free or very cheap to, you know, participate in sports from a sort of playing standpoint. And, you know, stadiums are unbelievably subsidized. I mean, it's a massive, massive tax transfer from basically people who aren't interested in sports to people who are. So, you know, that's another one. Professional teams are incredibly subsidized. Uh, you know, the, the Olympics are subsidized. I mean, it just it goes on and on. So, of course, the question is why? Why, uh, you know, uh, is, is this also subsidized? Um, and I think I think there's an interesting answer to it. I mean, like a lot of my theories, I really haven't had a lot of time to test it to test it empirically. And I got to tell you, I'm not even sure that I could. Uh, but uh, I will tell you what what makes sense logically, and then you know you can see if it sort of makes sense to you. Well, the interesting thing about teams is that you know they are all in fact equal in a sort of fundamental sense. Right. This is not, you know, a battle. The Super Bowl is not a battle of good versus evil. Right. This is not Ragnarok. Uh, this is not, you know, the the rapture of the sports uh, leagues. This is just, you know, a bunch of uh, overpaid, well, overpaid. You know, it's free market except that they're subsidized. So I can think I can safely say overpaid, overmedicated thugs, you know, pounding at each other. Uh, and you know, even if you don't take that, even if it's not like a balletic. Uh, you know, uh, if it's a balletic interpretation of human conflict or whatever, however you want to call it, uh, you know, one team is not different from another team at all. You know, they may have better athletes, they may have different uniforms, but, you know, fundamentally, there's absolutely no difference. It's not like one of them represents, uh, you know, the good guys and one represents the bad guys. It's not like, you know, the fate of the free world rests on who wins, you know, which particular trophy and so on. So fundamentally, there is no difference between the teams. However, sports subsidies and the whole approach that the state and and particularly state education has to sports is irrational, localized allegiance or irrational, localized preference. That, my friends, is a very important aspect of training people in how to view the state. I know, I know, maybe it seems like a reach, but, you know, bear with me. I think I can make a decent case for this. So, if what is closest to you geographically is best for no reason, 
And you were taught this over and over and over again. I mean, I remember in my junior high school and high school in Don Mills, Ontario, I mean, we even had a school song that, of course, absolutely nobody knew the, uh, uh, you know, the words and the, the music to, except maybe like one teacher who was 200 years old. But, you know, e- even at that level that, that, you know, your junior high school was the best junior high school and then the, uh, you know, the high school, which was right next to it, was the best and now better than the junior high school that you were at, you know, just one term before. I mean, so what, you know, what subsidized sports and what this kind of sports, you know, sports as a whole teaches people is that my local team is better is more valuable, is a higher order of, of excellence, uh, even if it's not objective, right? I mean, my, my, my team, the team that I was growing up with in England, they sucked. I mean, they were just terrible. I mean, they could barely pass the ball. Uh, and, you know, but I was supposed to love them because they were local. So it didn't have anything to do with the quality of the team because then sports wouldn't make any sense, right? you just wait to see who won and then <laughs> say that you followed that team. Um, and so, uh, you know, and of course in England you had these ridiculous things where people on one side of the street would, would support one team and people on the other side of the street would other team fights and, you know, rivalries and all this sort of nonsense. But basically what it does is it trains people into believing that what is local, although morally undifferentiated from what is far away, what is local is what you give your crazed, mad, you know, chimpanzee-like imprinted obedience to. And that is one of the things that the state really likes about sports. Uh, And, you know, why does the state like this about sports? Well, it's a lot easier to train children, you know, to to love a sports team than to love a government, right? I mean, when you're young, like, really, what do you care about the state? You know, um, I mean, I... Or economics. I mean, you don't care. I mean, I didn't care. I mean, I, I still remember, I guess, in 1980, maybe 1981, you know, I was like, I don't know, what, 14 years old, and I had a summer job, and I, I remember saying to my mom, gee, I don't understand this whole recession thing, you know, I don't understand, I mean, everything's the same, and she's like, well, that's because I still have my job, uh, so, you know, I, I didn't care, I didn't know, I mean, I got sort of irritated at the taxes that were taken off, but, you know, when you're working in a in a hardware store, you know, as I was, it's not like you, you know, making two two bucks and two dollars and fifty cents an hour it's not like you're giving up you know fifty percent of your income to the government so you know it doesn't really matter i was annoyed at paying taxes on records and you know whatever but i didn't care um but i could sort of understand and process uh teams right our team your team my team your team this team that team i could understand that i mean we obviously have pretty deep within our you know uh um our human our sort of uh, um ape-like cortex we have this understanding of my tribe better than your tribe right which is obviously a basic biological imperative that you know we really couldn't survive on our own not so much because of predators that were non-human in nature but because of other tribes with you know sticks and spears uh or at the very least we needed someone to watch over us while we slept so we didn't get like eaten by lions or something so you know you had to uh, have some sort of allegiance to your own tribe uh and of course uh, you know, that made sense. You know, why you automatically had to hate all the other tribes uh, didn't make quite as much sense, but it seems to me it would be something that would be provoked by the leaders, so you'd be good cannon fodder for war. So, uh, to to return to sort of sports, it seems to me that it makes sense 
that you know the purpose of subsidizing sports and making you know sports so public and available and you know uh, you know on, on the sort of CBC which is the government run television station up here in Canada also available and you know getting people all pumped up and all that kind of stuff it makes perfect sense because they want to teach you that you don't judge things by morality you judge things by proximity you don't even judge them by similarity to yourself you judge just judge them like close equals good far equals bad and you're sort of chanting lord of the flies type ape creature you know without any ability to process values other than you know what's closer is better what's farther is better and that is uh, you know a pretty important thing uh, for your government to to teach you right so it doesn't matter that we speak a different language from you and it doesn't matter that we don't look anything like you and it doesn't matter that uh, you know, we come and go and so on. Because if you look at the state, I mean, the state is very similar to a sports team, right? I mean, I remember when I was a kid, the people in the government, they sure as heck didn't speak anything like I did. Or they didn't, you know, they didn't look anything like I did. I mean, they were kind of crusty old adults. And so, and they didn't say anything that made any sense to me. So why would I have any allegiance to them, right? Um, so, you know, they... they, they they want to teach you that what's important is the structure that is proximate to you, that is close to you, not who's in it or what it does or anything like that, but just the structure. So you love the team, even though the coaches change, right, which is like the prime ministers or the presidents, even though the players change, like the congressmen or the, you know, the members of parliament or whatever, um, even though they don't look like you at all, uh, even though they don't sound like you at all, and in England this was even more clear because, you know, they've got the whole cockney, you know, fruity British accent, uh, boarding school accent uh, divide. So the, none of that matters. None of that matters that, you know, the, the, the contents of the structure come and go and, you know, they're nothing like you. What, what matters is that it's the closest structure to you, right? So it's a sports team or, you know, your, your government. I mean, your government is not better than anybody else's government. Governments are all the same, right? I mean, they, they just, they're limited by historical rationality and morality. Uh, I mean, there's no difference whatsoever between the government of America and the government of, say, Zimbabwe, except for the fact that the government in America has been restrained uh, due to uh, sort of some leftover historical baggage around the government should not be this dictator. So, right, I mean, they're taking time. Uh, to to get to the place where they can do that, but you know, uh, there's certainly absolutely no difference. I mean, force is force, violence is violence, right? Uh, you know, it's amazing when you hear the debates early on in the foundation of the American society when you know it'd be like, I'm sorry, I can't lay my uh, index finger on any any section of the Constitution that justifies this or that or the other. I mean, and none of that means anything anymore. And the Constitution is no longer a living document, but an abstract ghost. I mean, it's just something that's invoked to talk about without anybody having any clue. I mean, that they would think about impeaching Clinton, uh, <laughs> about impeaching Clinton, uh, you know, for treating a you know his aides like personal geishas and not Bush for invading without congressional approval. It's just, I mean, it's just, I mean, absolutely, absolute death of the empire, right? I I mean, the heart is completely rotten, and it's just a matter of time, uh, you know, without some significant intellectual in intervention until it goes the way of, of uh, you know, the uh, any dictatorship in the world. But, uh, you know, they do want to get you to love, uh, in a morally undifferentiated way, a particular structure based on its proximity to you, and that is one of the reasons why the state is so, so, so keen 
on subsidizing sports uh, so that you can then you have the principle within you that you know what is <laughs> what is closest is better and it doesn't matter who's in it it just is the structure that matters so you you know you have to have allegiance to the government even if you know some uh, left winger you despise gets voted in and passes all these laws while well, you still have to respect the law you have to respect the government, right? Even if your team is crap and never win anything, you're still supposed to think they're the best and, you know, give your, your allegiance to them. So, you know, this, I won't labor the point, I mean, any more than I've already been laboring it, but I think this aspect of, you know, why sports and and the state are so intertwined and why the state subsidized sports is um, is pretty interesting. And, you know, you will notice, of course, that the uh, the subsidies... Uh, of sports generally increased as the role of religion went down in society, right? I mean, uh, when religion was very strong, say, you know, in the 1850s in, in England or particular with the sort of muscular Christianity and so on that, I mean, sports was always subsidized for the upper classes for reasons that we'll get to in a sec to do with training people for war. But, you know, when, when religion was stronger, sports were less subsidized because, you know, the, the, the way to worship a morally ent- empty content uh, it, it's the way to get that principle across is to get people to worship a god uh, that doesn't exist and you know it doesn't matter whether good or evil happens to you you just have to worship god and so on even if priests are bad god is good even if everything that happens to you is bad god is good right uh, so when when people could teach people to love the state regardless of what it did through religion then they didn't need sports as much and then when religion began to fall away they had to find some other way to inculcate this blind allegiance to amoral power structures and you know a pretty good way to do it is sports it's not perfect but it's not the end of the world um so sort of that's one aspect of of sports that i find quite interesting Uh, another aspect that i find quite interesting is you know this uh, fairly clear and and well documented uh fact that uh, sports uh, leads to war. The relationship between sports and war, you know, has historically been very, very, very close. So, for instance, uh, you know, I mean, wrestling evol- evolved out of ritual combat, right, where people didn't want to uh, to kill each other but still had to resolve disputes without having to resort to something as awful as reason. Um, so, you know, this is where a lot of sports came out of. I mean, a lot of the sports are martial in origin, right? The obvious one, like javelin tossing and so on. Uh, but even, you know, more more subtle sports, uh, you know, they have an origin in, in the martial arts. And so, you know, the, 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 the training of one's body uh, for physical combat is one of the reasons why sports was all supported by the state in the past, right? I mean, you go back to the ancient Greeks and, you know, sports was considered to be one of the gymnastics in particular was one of the key things that the state was supposed to teach you. And, of course, the reason uh, that it was supposed to teach you sports was sort of twofold. Uh, one was, you know, it trains your body, quickens your reflexes, you know, strengthens your muscles uh, so that you're more likely in a time of martial combat to... Um, to, to come out ahead, right, versus some anemic city-dwelling couch potato who, you know, can barely lift his, his short sword, you know, you're pretty much going to take it down every time. So sports uh, was particularly uh, considered virile and manly and, you know, subsidized by the state so that, you know, the people would be well-trained in, uh, you know, not in, in something as inconsequential as, say, you know, farming or, you know, running a printing press. I mean, not that there were any back then, but, you know, you wouldn't want them to be trained in anything as silly as moving furniture or anything, you know, although that would train their muscles. That doesn't give them the reflexes and the sort of cold-blooded killing edge that they need 
So you want to make sure that you train them in stuff that, you know, makes them sinewy and quick and strike fast and all this kind of stuff. So, so you know, this glorification of murder. I mean, because all, all martial arts are based on murder, right? I mean, uh, there's just no question. And all sports, most sports, of course, being based on martial arts, are also based on, on murder. I mean, it's just a way of desensitizing people to a large degree. Um, so that's sort of one aspect of it. And the other aspect of sports that prepares people to war is sort of an offshoot of the first um, of the first one which is you know my team is better than the enemy team and of course in this instance the coach is uh, equivalent to the military commander right I mean this is not any sort of stunning revelation of mine I'm sure it's pretty clear to everyone who's spent two seconds thought on the on the subject I mean if, if, if anyone has this might be my obsession but I don't think it is um, you know, so you sort of, I'm thinking about a rugby game, right, which is, you know, uh, uh, where you sort of line up sort of on each side, and I mean, it's like, it's like Australian rules football, you know, which is sort of like open combat without swords, <laughs> and, you know, rugby, you know, no protection, there's none of this sort of American, you know, uh, uh, exaggerated padding thing, I mean, it's just you and, and mud and knuckles and bone and, you know, crashing into people and, you know... Uh, so that is very clear that, you know, your team, you, your allegiance is to your team, and you really can't, um, you have to have a great deal of passion for it. I mean, one of the things that's true about sports is that, you know, 80% of it, I mean, outside of the base physical talent, like 80% of it is mental. So, you, I mean, you have to really want to win. You have to want to win desperately, and, and you have to want to, like, endure anything to win, and you have to want to, you know, I'll play the game with a cracked tibia or whatever I'll, I'll play the grain with a bruised rib I'll do whatever it takes to win um, and of course it, it's it's stupid right I mean it's it's absolutely stupid and I've never understood these sports games uh, sports movies or sports anecdotes where it's like you know Joe play, played with a broken collarbone and yay what a hero I mean what a complete moron I mean unless you're being paid five million dollars a year you know it's just stupid and, of course, you don't aim to become a professional athlete any more than you aim to buy a lottery ticket instead of save for your retirement. I mean, it could happen, but, you know, the odds are so against it as to be ridiculous. But, um, you know, you play sports for the enjoyment, for the health, for the benefits, and to some degree for the socializing. But, you know, you, you don't damage your body to win. I mean, because what the hell are you winning? Ah, you're winning bragging rights. I mean, of all the secondhand nonsense to, to get excited about, you know. Because, I mean, sports stories like drunk stories are just ultimately incredibly boring. You know, they're all self-serving and they're all, you know, sort of a depressing, you know, dwelling on the past, past glories and so on. Um, so, you know, the fact that people are willing to accept these injuries uh, and, you know, just grit their teeth and play on despite, you know, bones sticking out of their shins and all this kind of stuff... I mean, obviously, this is, uh, you know, a pretty, a pretty sick uh, mental state to be in because, you know, assuming you're not a professional athlete, you're not getting paid for anything. Um, you, you know, you're basically frightened of being called a wimp and you're frightened of, you know, being called a namby-pamby or a mama's boy for, you know, saying, gee, you know, I'd rather, I'd rather you know, <laughs> I'd rather tuck my shin bone back into my skin and go to the hospital than continue playing. Um, and, of course, the only reason that you can do that, that, that you feel that it's more important to 
continue playing despite injuries, you know, I mean, I'm not talking about a bump, but, you know, something fairly serious, which happens quite a bit. The only reason you're willing to continue playing is you've just developed this completely irrational fixation upon winning, which means that, you know, where your moral center should be, right? I mean, we should not be concerned with winning a sports game, but with being good people, right? Because winning a sports game ain't going to make us happy for more than 15 minutes. Um, but, you know, being a good person is a foundation for a lifelong, uh, you know, basking in, in a sort of joyous bubble bath of, of, of moral happiness. Um, so, you know, the only reason that you'd be obsessed with winning is because you've sort of taken out the moral engine at your core and you have substituted for it, you know, blind social conformity and loyalty to your teammates who are no more moral than the teammates across the way. You know, and, and it's sort of a, as a minor aside about the, the history of my thinking on this. Whenever I would see these sports movies as a kid, it was always pretty clear to me that <clears throat> the only reason we want this team to win is because the camera didn't happen to follow the other team. You know, I mean, so, you know, we're on the Bad News Bears is, is playing and, oh, we want them to win so badly. And, you know, I mean, it's all complete crap. I mean, if the camera had been following the other team, we'd want them to win. I mean, it just felt so manipulative and just such, such a load of nonsense. Right, so people who are willing to overcome physical injury or, or you know, to just, you know, show, show, show strength of character by just pushing through and, you know, pounding people and taking more hits and possibly injuring themselves quite seriously, if not permanently, you know, these people are considered to be moral and good and, you know, all they've done is ripped out their moral apparatus and replaced it with sort of social conformity and a blind allegiance to dominating other people through brute force and skill, which is, you know, martial in origin. So if you can get people to believe, you know, that my loyalty is, my, is to my team, I will accept physical injury in order to make my team win, winning is everything, well, you know, you've kind of got them eight-tenths of the way they need to be, you know, to just sign up to war and start killing people. I can't remember who it was, but somebody, and I think it was a 19th century British military leader or statesman who said, you know, the battle of such and such was won on the playing fields of Eton. You know, it's one of these, in England at least, it's a pretty famous quote, you know, which says that, you know, the sports in the upper class schools, in the upper class environments, are fundamental to British martial victory. You know, and to me, it's, it's a pretty telling statement. It's a lot better than that, that sort of drippy and self-defeatist and self-destructive, uh, you know, muttering of, of uh, you know, the guy who won the Battle of Trafalgar uh, saying, Oh, I regret that I have but one life to give for my country. I mean, please. It's just too ridiculous for words. Um, uh, Nelson, Horatio Nelson, that's the guy. So, um, so these are sort of considerations that I think are very interesting. Uh, around the world of sports uh, and around, you know, there's nothing, again, nothing wrong with sports. Sports are great. Love sports myself, uh, you know, but it's an enjoyable, you know, activity in terms of, you know, it's a bit of socializing, you, you have some fun. Uh, I do occasionally get whipped up into the, you know, win or die mentality because, you know, I have that, you know, lower reptilian base of my brain, which, you know, I also respect because it gives me things like temper and resilience and, and moral courage. So, uh, you know, but for the most part, I recognize that that's sort of inappropriate for the situation. And what would be far more satisfying is to enjoy myself and test my skill. Um, but the reason is sort of to, to wrap it up. The reason that, uh, you know, sports is so heavily subsidized is the underlying message of allegiance to a sports team is, you know, this abstract construct called the team is what you have allegiance to. 
right? Not how well it does. In other words, not how effectively the government manages things. Uh, and, and not who's in it. Uh, in other words, not who happens to have gotten elected. Not who the coach is. In other words, not who the, uh, the, um, the, uh, the prime minister or the president is. But it's just your allegiance. And why is it what you should have allegiance to? Why? Simply because, you know, you were born there. Right? I mean, so if you're born in England, you have allegiance to the British government. And if you're born in Crystal Palace, you have allegiance to the Crystal Palace team. I mean, the parallels are too, uh, too striking to be, you know, just coincidence. And, you know, everything that the, that the state subsidizes, it subsidizes for its own benefit, as I mentioned in my last chat about uh, health care. So, I mean, the coincidences between a, a, a sports team and, you know, a democratic government, or even a non-democratic government for that matter, I mean, they're just far too striking a set of parallels. And, you know, the fact that, you know, it's not uncommon for people who have a strong allegiance to a sports team to also be strongly patriotic in general. Uh, you know, these are not... I mean, I've never met anybody who is uh, neither... Uh, who is interested, uh, you know, very interested in, in the success of a sports team and not also patriotic and vice versa. You know, but I've met lots of people who have both, right? I myself have absolutely no atom of patriotism in my, in my body, um, and I really could care less about sports teams. Um, similarly, you know, I know people who are, you know, very into the, the local hockey team, the Toronto Maple Leafs, and, you know, they're also, uh, you know, a very, very sort of uh, patriotic towards Canada as a whole. And this sort of uh, person, you know, it goes hand in hand, and it's no accident. You know, if, if anybody else out there has met any different kind of of personality types, feel free to let me know. But I think this is, you know, I'm not just sort of making these things up in terms of these sort of rules that, or, or observations or logical inferences that I come up with. They're based on, you know, pretty solid uh, evidence, you know. And I start with the people in my life that I've known and sort of work from there. So, you know, my country, right or wrong, is, you know, very much from, you know, my team win or lose. Uh, the, the tying in of your emotional energies into, you know, morally empty external constructs that, that you have no power or control over, you know, is, I mean, sorry about that mouthful, I, you know, you can replay it if you want, but basically what I'm trying to say is that if you give up your sort of emotional, um, uh, your emotional barometer to, you know, a team that you have no power over and, you know, you can't control whether they win or lose, I mean, it's, it's a species of gambling, right? I mean, that you... You know, you'll uh, you'll put money on a horse, and you have even a little more, a little bit more control because at least you can choose your horse. You don't just sort of say, "Well, this is the horse I was born the closest to. So this one I've always got to put my money on." With sports, I mean, you're putting your emotional apparatus entirely at the mercy of this external concept that has no, that you have no control over. Which is exactly the same as what occurs with the state, right? I mean, uh, I'm a Republican, I'm a Democrat, I obey my president, I obey my prime minister. These are all you know, nonsense emotional construct, uh, sorry, nonsense conceptual ideas that you have absolutely no control over. I mean, you have no control over the government. And it's the same thing with religion, right? I mean, that you're going to say, uh, I'm going to put my entire emotional apparatus over, um, you know, onto this, this abstract concept called the deity. And, you know, if things go well for me, then I'll be very proud. And if things go badly for me, then I'll be chastened and I'll still want to be, you know, doing right. And it doesn't matter what happens, I still have to have allegiance. So I guess it's taking people... And, and so what it does is not only does it put your entire emotional apparatus at the mercy of things that don't mean anything and are outside of your control, but 
every ounce of emotional energy that you put into allegiance towards things like, you know, the state or, or a god or, you know, some, some sports team is emotional energy that is distinctly not available to you to be a moral person. I mean, our emotional apparatus is not, you know, this infinite well that, that can just, you know, keep gushing and gushing and gushing. I mean, it has its limits and, the, you know, its limits are based on, you know, you, you can't love something at its opposite. I mean, unless you're willing to just lie to yourself and lie to others. So, you know, whatever energy you pour into, you know, support your troops or, you know, God is good or, you know, go leaves go. I mean, this is emotional energy that is simply not available to you when it comes to, to where you really need emotional energy and emotional support from your neuro, neuro, uh, some neuropsychological system, which is when, you know, when you're being wronged, when there's a moral question at stake, when somebody is undermining you or, or attacking you either sort of emotionally or, or verbally or, you know, I guess physically is pretty rare, but... You know, when you are facing a, a really, uh, I guess, an important enemy, not, you know, oh, the team from the other side of town, but, you know, somebody who is saying that I want to create a state-run daycare, you know, and force parents to hand over their children to the state, you know, and force uh, people, even who, those who don't have children, to pay for it. Well, by God, there's an enemy that you need to fight. There's somebody that you need to actually take to the take onto the carpet and take to task. But you know, hey, you really can't because you know you've wasted all of your emotional energy on you know running after these stupid abstract concepts that you have no control over, uh, and you've tied yourself to this you know you've tied your heart to this kite that's blowing around in some random wind, and you don't really have any energy left over to deal with. Um, you know, what's actually important in life because you've screwed up all of your values by thinking that some sports team or some country or some deity is more important than some other sports team, country or deity. So I guess, you know, in conclusion, that's, that's the real purpose behind this. I mean, all the rest of it is nice and juicy and helps. But of course, the real purpose, as Thomas Pinchot said, you know, if they can get you asking the wrong questions, they don't care about the answers. You know, the real question that they're trying to get you to ask is not you know, what is right and wrong, what is true and false, you know, what is good and evil, but rather, you know, how's my team doing? And, you know, the more that they can get us to, in a sense, you know, fight amongst ourselves, then, you know, the more that we will be unable to sort of fight them, you know? I mean, so, I mean, I was, I was watching some uh, wife swap the other night, uh, which for those who aren't in North America is not what you think. Uh, it's just, you know, they take some woman and they switch switch her with some other woman as a wife, you know, for, for two weeks. And, you know, this woman who was, you know, this sort of hippy-dippy spiritualist hypnotherapist chick was, you know, in this house of this sort of fundamentalist, creepy Christian uh, group. And, you know, the, the women are all glaring her down and saying, Sal, you're not a Christian, huh? You know, and pretty, pretty hostile, you know. Oh, you just believe in some higher power. Well, I got to tell you, honey, I think you're of the devil. You know, that kind of stuff. And, you know, so, of course, you know, there's all these divisions being caused and, you know, people not able to get together and people fighting each other and, you know, people sort of jeering other people across the other side of the stadium and, you know, feeling hostile towards immigrants and feeling hostile towards people who speak or look differently. And, you know, I mean, good Lord, none of that means anything. I can't remember the time, the last time that any immigrant who's not in the government did anything even the, most rem the least remotely harmful to me. 
you know, what I have to worry about is the people who are in the government who have the guns, right? Not, you know, people who believe something different than I do or have a different sports team than I do or whatever. So I hope that this has sort of helped you have a look at, you know, how in my perspective or my opinion uh, the state does uh, sort of utilize sports uh, to, you know, get us to have this sort of irrational localized allegiance uh, to, to sort of train us physically and, and get us used to following orders uh, and also in particular to sort of divide us up and to, you know, bleed our emotional energy, which should be used for more moral pursuits, off into, you know, just cheering, you know, mindless, amoral teams. And uh, I hope this hasn't completely destroyed your ability to enjoy sports because I certainly enjoy them. But it's sort of important to look at them when they're funded by the state as an apparatus of the state. And I think that this has been helpful. Thanks so much for listening again. All the best.